0: you know as you as your number of brands increase and as your number of different products increase managing that system becomes more complicated and so to keep that all straight and to manage that in a diligent way really requires a very specific and well thought out brand management system and that's what that case study describes i think
1: Welcome to Forward Looking Business, the show where ambitious and successful CEOs share their capital allocation strategies which have enabled them to maximize the potential of their companies. With your hosts, CEO and Founder Kevin Griffith and CMO Nick Lipitsky.
2: Welcome to Episode 5 of Forward Looking Business. This is Nick Lepetsky, co-founder of Amplify Capital with Kevin Griffith, CEO of Amplify Capital. Today on episode five, we are going to talk about a brand management system uh, from Procter & Gamble. We've found that there is a a lot to learn from implementing a a system of management in your organization, specifically around brand management. So what we did is we found a case study on Procter & Gamble's brand management system. It describes a structure that drives the the business through uh, product innovation. And we're going to dive into that. And today to do that, we have two guests, Aaron Keller from Capsule, which is a brand strategy and design firm. Uh, he's founder and CEO there. He's also a columnist for the Twin Cities Business Magazine, also co-author of Physics of Brand. The other guest is Marco Vreins, who is an assistant professor of marketing at UW-La Crosse and CEO of Quantum, a analytics and data science firm. Aaron and Marco, welcome to the show today.
1: Thank you, Nick. Good to have you. Good to be here.
2: Great. So you guys have seen this case study and uh, we've had a couple conversations before this about brand management systems. But overall, what I want to do is get into this by uh, first jumping into the background around the brand management system that Procter & Gamble implemented. One of the reasons I think this is a fascinating case study is that Procter & Gamble has... Really, I mean, you can say that they found, founded this entire system of, of brands management. And if anybody has other information, correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen another example of a brand that uh, goes as far back as what was it? They were established in 1837. It was founded by a candle maker and a soap maker. Uh, that I believe they were related through marriage, and uh, they were making their products from leftover pork products from the slaughterhouses in Cincinnati. So anyway, these guys get together in 1837 and in a few years have a million-dollar business by uh, selling, I think, just regionally. But uh, the idea here is that they've formalized a brand management system. And I believe it was not until about the 1930s that this happened. Before that, as um, I understand it, it was kind of a free-for-all. It's that the brands were able to compete against each other and, and they you know, didn't have too much structure. Kind of curious what that business would be like, and I'm assuming there are some out there. But I think you know this has become so common and normalized now that like you don't see even a, even a small business knows the fundamentals of of a brand hierarchy and about segmenting a brand to a specific audience, right? So, you know, I think we can probably give credit to Procter and Gamble for that. But you know, anyway, before I get into that, you know you know I want to pass it over to you guys real quick just to you know either you know do a quick introduction and uh let me know uh, a little bit about you know your background and if there's anything specific you want to talk about uh specific to the case study here but uh once we get through that I'll get into some questions specifically about this brand management system so Aaron do you want to go first to just tell us a little bit about yourself and l- let us know if there's anything off the case study that struck you
1: yeah i grew up in brand management and uh, and thinking about brands holistically. And and to me, uh, P&G is the classic, is the is the first, is the foremost. They would say even Ivory Soap was the first brand or one of the really early brands that existed out there in the world. It was treated like and managed like a brand. And um, there's so many interesting historical ties in this that are rather fascinating how they thought about... About managing brands, the thing that struck me was the fact that uh, they treated the brand managers as like small entrepreneurs, essentially, within the company, right? They had P&L responsibility. They were basically managing a small company within a larger conglomerate and and had all the responsibility, but also the rewards to go with that if they built a strong brand. And it became very entrepreneurial early on, right? And how they built a large number of brands coming out of that, which is really rather fascinating. The other one that they didn't mention that I happen to know about one of the early lines that you can see in the early ads around Ivory Soap, which was the fact that it was more pure and you could see that in the fact that it floats. It was one of their early lines in their advertising because, you know, it's, for some reason, that was that was evidence of its purity as, as the soap, right? If you look back then, you know, soap was handmade, much akin to what we're talking about with your current client with Pacha, right? In which it's made in a more of an old-fashioned way than many forms, which is a rather fascinating tieback to this case study. So that was intriguing to me. A great pick as far as a case study to talk about.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we thought so too. Thanks. You guys are perfect to have on this. And, and, and Marco, uh, if you want to give us a little brief intro on yourself too and tell us what you were thinking of the case study.
0: Uh, yeah, so I'm a professor in marketing right, at the University of Wisconsin uh, in La Crosse. I also run my own analytics firm, Quantum. And in the capacity of quantum, uh, we do, we do, uh, I, I would say a fair degree of brand related work with respect to the PNG case study. That's obviously uh, a super interesting case study because. PNG is uh, you know just the ultimate marketing company they uh, you know everything is you know everything is marketing almost in in PNG although I don't know if they would say that about themselves but you know that that's how oftentimes it gets to be described you know the the, the case study I think is interesting because it, it really shows the the importance of brand management you know, it, it shows that the, that, the, that brand management becomes more important as a company grows. You know, when you are just a relatively small company and you have maybe one or two products and, and maybe there's one brand around it, you know, you probably can get away with, you know, maybe with one brand manager. But if you, you know, as, you, as your number of brands increase and as your number of different products increase, you know, that managing that system becomes more complicated, you know, and for a company like Procter & Gamble, I don't know what the current number of brands that they have, but I would imagine that it's probably like maybe like around a thousand maybe even more. And so to keep that all straight and to manage that, uh, you know, in a, in a diligent way, you know, really requires, you know, a very specific and well thought out brand management system. And that's what that case study describes, I think. Uh, and there's different ways in which you can do it. But, you know, obviously Procter & Gamble is, is a successful company. So the way that they do it is, you know, it's worthwhile looking at.
2: Thank you. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to throw it over to you too. Is there anything about your case study that, uh, that struck you?
3: You know, what I looked at Is kind of the context in which it was born, right? It was born in the Great Depression, and kind of like you know, from a management standpoint, not necessarily from a brand standpoint. I wonder how this thought process went. You know, they probably looked at their products and understood they were commoditized to an extent, right? Sending candles and soap, and brand was kind of using the Michael Porter framework was a key activity that drove value, and so they built their reporting, they built their management around this key activity because they knew this is what differentiated them in the market, in a market that they really needed it to be differentiated in. And so that kind of blossomed. And and this is kind of just what struck me was they've been focusing on what their key activity is that drives value. And they didn't let the operational silos of an organization stand in their way. They recreated their own system and, and it created this. Huge company, you know, by focusing on these value-added activities.
2: I mean, that gets into one of the first things I wanted to talk about, which is just an exploration on the uh, significance of having this brand management system and why does uh, it evolve the way way it does? And 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 actually, the most the thing I'm most curious about is how does it evolve and who decides, right? So who's sitting there saying, "All right," you know, in the case study they describe pretty clearly about how it began. They said that originally that all the brands competed against each other and they really didn't have any issues with their products going head to head. And then eventually, you know, they cited a problem they had with a couple of brands and, and one didn't fare well. And they blamed the fact that it, it actually didn't have a, an adequate chance of competing against the other brand. And so then they started creating the system. And I would also imagine that the system was created as they grew, it just became more manageable meaning they had to start segmenting their internal operations because they couldn't just have a bunch of chiefs across the the board that they uh, just needed to have some kind of system. So I'll stop there and just say like, what is there, does anybody have an opinion or what do we think here? Like how does one decide on the evolution of the system? And specifically, you know, for the audience here, Uh, Procter & Gamble, I'll talk about the the system real quick, the systems that they went through. I mean, originally, the uh, P&G formalized a brand management system in the 1930s. And they did that with uh, the soaps and and so forth, where they identified the specific users and their attraction to the product features. And that's how they did the segmentation in the beginning. Guys, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, And then in the 80s, they introduced the category management system. And in the 90s, they did a what they called a glocal, which is a response to the global market. Uh, and they started managing things globally. And in 2000s, they have this new cohort management system, basically grouping brands by behavior, which is more a response to the internet and the change in channels, the change in the ability to broadcast and reach a large audience with a large generic message. And that's what's driving this cohort management system. So I can see fundamentally how... Like The marketplace and opportunities drive that, but how does one in management say, you know what? It's not the 90s anymore, guys. It's 2000s. <laughs> like, Let's make this change. And how do you make that decision with confidence? Because this is a big decision for a company like P&G to, to go through. And I imagine there were lots of conversations at the board level where they were trying to sell this through. It's got to come from a CEO at some point where it's either led by uh, the CEO or you know approved and blessed by the CEO. So, uh, I'll hand it over to, to anybody who's got an opinion on that and on how you think that would uh, play out in, in an organization, big or small.
1: Yeah, it's, um, if you look back on it historically, you got to give them kudos for having invented something, not just the product, but the way of managing the product. You don't refer to them as, you know, as a product management approach. No, it's a brand management approach. And they actually acknowledge that that it has something of significant value. And they were able to not only exit from only thinking about product, but also evolve beyond just brand, which is not an easy thing for a culture to do. But they had to also have seen the pressures and the movements and the power of retail. And I would say early on, it was, you know, they could go anywhere and they could compete because it was, you know, the brand was the more powerful entity and then retailers became more powerful. And then, uh, you know, distribution had to deal with where are we going to be and how are we going to optimize at scale this idea of making soap and having a really valuable brand. So uh, more than likely, there were some significant trends that they saw. Uh, It would indicate that they needed to move to the category manager. Um, And then the global local thing was kind of an interesting, in the case study, an interesting kind of small stage in the middle where they figured out how to be a more global brand borrowing from what they learned in each of the markets they were in. And I'm not really a fan of the cohort thing. I think that was, to me, (laughs) built in uh, in the vacuum of a management consulting company that didn't get oxygen to the brain and and looked at that and said, oh, this is a brilliant new idea for the internet is I don't know that I ever made it anywhere. I never saw any stuff out of it. And when we read the case study, I'm like, oh, is this just something from Forrester? I'm like, that's interesting, but I don't think so.
2: Right. Who sponsored this case study? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This is this case study sponsored by Forrester.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I got out of that. But in the other, the other evolutions were commendable because of the culture they had to be in at that time to say, we invented this idea of brand management, right? What are we going to do? Change that? Are you kidding me? Right? There was probably plenty of people that were contesting that, that idea, that change.
2: Marco, do you have anything to add?
0: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I'm not really a specialist in, uh, in organizational structure and organizational management. When I think about branding, right? For, for me, the, the reason why branding is so important is because it is really the connection to the consumer. And so, brand management, I think, is also very tightly connected to consumer research. And actually, as a matter of fact, Procter & Gamble is well known for both of these elements. They have a huge marketing research and consumer research department. They do a lot of uh, innovative stuff in that area. And they also have a huge brand management you know, emphasis. But when you think about branding from a consumer perspective, I think it's all about simplifying if you're trying to sell soap, you know, and you're competing with a whole bunch of other soaps that are, you know, in essence, just pieces of soap, you're going to have to do something to make it easier for the consumer, you know, to make a choice and preferably to make a choice for your brand. So you want to maybe, you know, differentiate on some intangible, you know, feature of your brand, you know, that will make it easier for, you know, for consumers to, you know, to pick you. If you have a, if you have a more complicated product like cars or, you know, cameras, you know, then brand also plays a role because you know these products are becoming so complicated that you know consumers cannot evaluate these things anymore on all the on all the you know on the numerous product features. So it's going to have to be simplified along you know along some higher level dimensions that that are basically elements of the brand. You know whether it's something is easy to use or something is high quality or something is innovative for whatever you know whatever you pick. And I think that I I see that also a little bit as an underlying dimension in what Procter & Gamble is doing because the initial impetus, I think, of having brand management was to make it easier to communicate with consumers and to help consumers, you know, find and pick their brands. In the brand literature, they, you know, they make a distinction between physical availability and mental availability. Physical availability is just the distribution of your product. But mental availability is basically how easy is it for your brand and for your product to pop into consumer's mind you know at the moment that they have to buy something and so if you can if you can make that connection in the consumer's mind with your brand so that when they you know when they are ready to buy coffee or when they are ready to buy soap or you know when they you know when they're ready to buy whatever you know that your brand is let's say the first one you know to come to mind the cohort system, I agree a little bit with Aaron that, uh, first of all, I'd never heard of it, but, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, that it's not good. But the way that I, the way that I interpreted it, but again, I do not know the details of how Procter and Gamble viewed this. But if you think about a system, right, where you have, uh, you know, hundreds of different brands and, and each of these different brands have their own audience. And now whoever the brand manager is or the category manager has to come up with, you know, ways of communicating with all these different audiences. That becomes a very complex task. If you can identify segments that are different, you know, that are similar in terms of attitudes, maybe similar in terms of behaviors and that consume, you know, a certain group of brands from your company, then now instead of, you know, in, in, instead of communicating with 300 different audiences, you can communicate maybe with five different segments and that makes it a lot more efficient. That's was my takeaway that that was one of the driving motivations behind that cohort management system to just make it to make the marketing operations more efficient. So the build off
3: you know Aaron and Marco so I got to make a few statements and then lead to a question so Aaron I think you you hit it right on the head like if you look at the timeline that's laid out in the case study you know when they redid their brand management system to start focusing on categories coincides with the rise of Walmart right you know you've got these industry forces changing and you see P&G In the case Dundee adapting, you know, initially you could go anywhere with the brand and it was all about distribution and and spend, and that didn't matter. Then Walmart showed up, and then, you know, so they changed that. Then the internet showed up, and the, the cohort strategy is, I think, trying to get to that. But, you know, so the question I have is, you know, retail is starting to shift, obviously, and you now have the rise of Amazon. You know, what? How should companies be handling this, right? Like the, the sales channels of the past are slowly adapting and in some ways crumbling. How do you continue to focus on what adds value? And to Marco's point, the segmentation, the data. But how do you move that aircraft carrier, so to speak? Or if you're a nimble brand, how do you how do you take advantages of the the weaknesses that some that someone like P and G might have?
2: Yeah, one of the things that you touched on there. Kevin, with your question regarding turning the big ship, right? And when I think about this case study and how it's pointing to this brand management system, not so much as a system to the marketing in the sense of like messaging and, and advertising, it's really a system to lead product innovation. And I'm thinking what Aaron just said there was that that's where the gaps were was in product innovation, right? That they didn't innovate and method stepped in, that seventh generation stepped in. And so if if you're creating a, a system like this, what I'm picking up is that there's a problem and it's specifically in the product life cycles, which is another part of this case study that they touch on is that, that Procter & Gamble didn't believe in product life cycles, meaning that brands don't mature. They don't just die and fade away once consumers lose interest in it, they they innovate them, right? And they and they believe that's what the answer was is that you once you have a product or once you have a brand and you understand more about what your segment wants from that brand, you innovate the product. And maybe that's you know, that's why my toothpaste doesn't just say crest on it, right? It says crest with whitening power and like five other things I don't understand, but I'm just assuming are really good for my teeth. But (laughs)
3: well here's let me push back on that because that this is going to be unpopular in in the current company but in i would argue in you know 80s 90s uh, 2000s early 2000s before the rise of the internet and, and the consumer the big retailers were looking for supply chains they weren't looking for brands they were looking for somebody to manage the whole category to fill their shelves with a consistent product. Nationally, and whoever executed on that best was able to win the business. And so everything shifted to the retailer and focusing on Walmart and Target and keeping them happy. But as the industry dynamic has changed, to Aaron's point, the consumer now holds all the power. Your supply chains don't necessarily need to be as strong in order to take away some of this market share. And so, what kind of was lip service in terms of how important brand was in the 90s, now it matters right? Because now that is really how it's competing and and it's the sophistication with the data and the way it operates has to go to a whole new level because the way it worked, you still see this today, like in greeting cards, you know, with 30 watt American greetings and hallmark, they just buy slotting fees, right? That's, that was the old game, right? And now the whole market's changing. If you go from industry to industry, I think that's more what we're seeing than ever before. I don't know thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. The, the the fact that you can get down to very specific things that you can only own one of, right? I mean, there's that on the other end of the spectrum, which is completely us from p and right? That they're selling a mass, distributed mass, manufactured at scale item. And not that we're going to be able to live off of all things that are unique to us. That's not possible. But we've moved in that direction, not in the direction of more of mass produced, mass production kinds of things. So it's counter to the systems and the thinking that exists inside of a big company like that, right? It's kind of like the old story, not even old, the story that's come up recently where people have said to McDonald's, you're too fast. You're delivering my food too fast. I mean, shit, they're fast food. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that inside of McDonald's? Like, what do you mean we're too fast? I don't know how to deal with that, right? (laughs) I mean, we've been trying to make it faster, and we made it faster for you, and now you say it's too fast? What? I don't understand. Slow it down, (laughs) right? It's the same thing. Yeah, you It has to be going on inside of P&G. Like, how come we keep getting sliced apart by these little tiny things that... You know, how is this guy in Hastings, Nebraska, <laughs> selling all this soap inside of Whole Foods? This is not that it's, you know, potches and anywhere near the size of ivory, but they're taking something and they're, you got to think they're noticing it. And they're going, look at that. It's going back to the way we did it 100 years ago, right? How do we deal with that? We've got a lot of systems and a lot of meetings have to take place in order for us to go in that direction. And there's no way they can make profits at that scale, right? There's just, it doesn't exist, Right. So they've got to figure out how to be profitable in small lots, and that's not easy for big companies to do. Or they got to move the culture back to big lots. The other one that I want to make sure I mention on this, because someone else gave me this years ago, P and G invented soap operas. So if you think about the original content marketing, that was it right there. I mean, they created content, you know, for moms in the fifties to watch watch soap operas, so they can have commercials around them. Freaking brilliant, isn't it? they well the television networks needed content right and so they they pushed to create what are soap operas what you have today they're called soap operas because of png right basically so they could have content around which to sell soap and detergent and other things to clean your house and to work on your house yeah it's one of those historical crazy things the influence of of that brand right we look back and now we think well i mean they're big but they're not like apple big they're not like know, even Walmart big, right? They're just... But then they were big. They were a big deal because brand was powerful. It was the thing, right? It's what you trusted. Now it's not as much what you trust, right? It's the smaller brands you trust, right? The other thing that when Nick was talking about the the distinction between the product innovating and the brand innovating, right? They kind of... They didn't innovate the brands. They innovated the products within the brands, right? So they added new features and benefits. The brands themselves like tied I don't think the trade dress and try and tide has changed in I don't know how many years. I even reference that they don't like to change that part of it. And so all of a sudden you're looking old and stodgy. Not, you know, visual language wise, but you don't look like this upstart young brand, right? Everything is new around you. And because you generally don't improve upon or change the brand language, which I think is... You're seeing a little a hint of that here and there with old brands like Coca-Cola going to personalized cans, right? where they're putting names on cans. It's their way of saying, okay, we can adapt. We can be a little bit more agile. We can actually mess with our trade dress and not get stuck in this old mentality of what you do is you upgrade the product inside, but you don't change the brand. So if they can consistently find this thing, as basic as that is, right? Find it on the shelf. But it's a different deal now. Right, you want it to be fresh and new and the the interesting thing. Yeah, so that's my view on it at least.
2: I like your view. Thank you. (laughs) That makes me uh, think about you know the brands, specifically brand managers or the brand's influence uh, over the rest of the organization, specifically sales, finance, R and D, and things like that. So, what should the brand's influence be, and how can they influence the rest of the organization? the, the different counterparts that they they use to support the larger vision of the organization. So I'm I'm curious to to get feedback from you guys as far as what as a brand manager or as a, maybe as a, an owner of a business with a single brand is what do I do to provide resources and information to the rest of the organization in order to drive the success for my brand.
1: Do you want me to go first? give you my big speech on the two big things you have to work with on the top line are sales and asset value of the brand, the intangible assets, right? Those two big pieces. So as far as how much you allocate those, how much you can tie back to sales, which is very measurable, the things that can contribute to that sometimes not as measurable. So those two big things every day you should be making a contribution to. And nowadays, it's everybody in the organization should be aware They don't have to be knowledgeable down to the bones of every detail, but they should at least be aware that they're building a brand because they're more than likely interacting with customers in some way and need to know the brand that they're building in a more intimate way, which is a challenge for sure. But those that are allocated with the the responsibility to shepherd that uh, need to be more of a coach, more of a you know, because they, they don't have as much power. You can you can even see in the case study as it evolves, like they go from the brand managers and now the brand managers report to the category managers. And I'm assuming that they move to now the category managers report to the cohort managers if that really became a thing. So all of a sudden, brand manager, you have know, three steps down over the, whatever it was, 50 years of the case study or hundred years. So they don't have as much power, but they, they have to have influence. So a coach is the, is the title or the role, right? To be able to bring a lot of different people and perspectives together to make stuff move forward to get stuff done is the, uh, the challenging role of a brand manager nowadays.
2: I see uh, Marco you're in agreement. Is there any, any, uh, I'm trying to get you guys to fight. That's been my goal this entire podcast. Oh, oh my, I'm, I'm kidding. I I'm kidding. <laughs> <that>.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think what Evan was saying, I think is it's, it's correct. I think, uh, yeah, coach, I think is is I think is a pretty good word for it. You know, if I think about the brand managers and the brand directors that I've encountered in my work, these are people that oftentimes, by the way, they sit kind of like independently from the marketing department, which is a little bit strange sometimes. But whether they sit in the marketing department or not, they're going to obviously have to coordinate very heavily with marketing because, you know, whatever marketing is doing, in, you know, in advertising and in promotion, you know, has to be aligned with what, you know, the brand manager is trying to build, you know, with the brands, right? But they also engage with r and d, you know, to make sure that uh, you know that r and d comes up with the products that are aligned with the brand. you know and they and they engage with the PR department, you know, to make sure that what's going on there you know is aligned with what you know what the brand is doing. And then in some service organizations where where you have a lot of like frontline employees having contact with customers, you know then of course, in essence the whole the whole organization becomes a brand. and you know that's the ultimate you know that's the ultimate situation where you really have to coordinate that. I guess so I, I agree largely with what Aaron was saying. For for me the brand is really the translation to consumer benefits and, and to make sure that your brand comes to mind first in consumers' mind. That is really the strategy that, that that I think all brands should have. However you do that with cohorts or with brand, you know, with brand directors, you know, that's just a, that's just an organizational tool to get to that to ultimately get to that same outcome.
3: So I mean um take a different perspective and then kind of make a a statement and see what you guys think, you know, from a, a capital allocation standpoint, you know, brand is still a very important asset. And to Aaron and Marco's point, they, it drives a lot of the rest of the organization, especially what you're building your brand promise on what your points of differentiation are, who's your target consumer. But I would say that the era of big product categories is over. Brands will never reach the value, you know. There'll be exceptions, but they'll never reach the value they once did. In like a Heinz ketchup, or you know, even potentially Apple. There's there's so much fragmentation, the barriers to entry, especially in CPG, are so low that even if you have a brand that's successful with a consumer segment, you have to understand that it won't be bigger. And you know, one of the things that we've been talking a lot of at Pacha and other, other clients is how do you make a nimble organization where investing in brand is the math is really hard. You know, it's, it's not, you'll never be as big as Coke. Uh, You'll never be, you know, the, the billion dollar brand might be hard to attain again, as these markets fragment, like how do you manage that in terms of resources, right? If you're a, if you're a category manager and you've got to manage 10 brands, how are you picking and choosing and, and thinking through that? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true, uh, Kevin. It's a very interesting hypothesis. I would have to think about it a little bit longer, but I, you, you could almost argue the, the opposite, right? Although I don't have any data on it, so you know, I, I can't really prove my point or your point. Maybe you can prove your point, but, but I can't prove either way. But I would imagine in today's world, every little bit of information is available online, you know, I can go to Amazon.com and I can look at the 50 brands if I, you know, if I want to, right. I don't have the time or the energy to look at 50 brands, you know, even though I can theoretically, I'm going to pick the brand that I, that I recognize and I trust. So in that, in that avalanche of information, I think, you know, brand has even become more important. Now that doesn't mean that there are product categories where people are looking for something unique. You know, I want a fancy little piece of soap to put on my, you know, to put in my guest room, you know, yeah, sure that will happen. But, you know, the majority of the the soap purchases, people are not going to go to Whole Foods to buy some quirky little piece of soap. You know, that's just not going to happen, I think. So I think in that avalanche of information and availability, I think uh, brand is is becoming even more important as a shortcut. You know, what what do you think, uh, Aaron and Nick?
1: Yeah, the the basic idea that it's shortcut and you have have to have some sort of level of awareness. There's also there's a changing landscape of, of what and who you trust to deliver a brand to you, right? Now you got influencers, you've got other people that 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 pontificate about a brand that might show up somewhere and become hot for a little while. And it can be very small, but yet still have a trusted following. I do agree that there's probably not going to be the the Heinz catch ups of the world or those big brands. That is that's hard to see now, you know, it's all relative to the scale we're at right now as far as number of brands, but it seems to favor the long tail versus the big beast of a brand that's getting the volume. It just, it isn't as common anymore. You just don't see that happen. And it also, uh, there's just a natural tendency to want to see the next thing, right? Even the retailers want that and, and consumers for certain want that. So they're always pushing. So they in many ways, it's almost flipping from I want the product to, to only innovate and the and the brand to stay the same to I want either both to innovate. So I want a new version of Tide now, right? Not as you've always seen it, but product and brand innovate and evolve for me to show that you've you've modernized. Tide may be a tough example of that, but versus you know, method coming into the marketplace where you're like, wow, that's a nicely designed version of of what is Tide. There's an old story of having um, seen Method go into basically P&G's heartland, which is within Target or or Walmart, um, the detergent category, right? And they went in with a three-in-one concentrate that Tide or P&G would not do. And every time Target went to them to do this, they wouldn't do it because Target basically had to pay, the it was a loss leader to have that in their stores because of the shipping water. And so the gentleman in charge of this, who happened to know, went to Method and said, I'd like to bring a three-in-one concentrate. And he didn't think about it, but the day he dropped them in, in the entry into the aisle, that next week or next day, he was at P&G for other meetings. And they pulled him into every office they could to say he's going to destroy the category with this three-in-one concentrate thing. But they didn't at all. It became a thing and they had to follow because it was a new thing that... That consumers wanted, valued, thought was important, methods saw it, P&G chose to ignore it, chose to say, I'm not gonna consider the consumer or the person or the human. I'm gonna consider what's important for my brand, right? And my brand is built on volume, right? And if I move from that, I'm accepting the fact that that I'm not in charge of my brand anymore, which is a dangerous thing. I just I don't think brands can get that big anymore. I agree, there's just too much, too much fragmentation. Maybe somewhere down the road, it will all come back to that again in some form. but
2: Yeah. And I think the thing to look for there is I think brand worked really well with mass because I think more consumers, my own theory is that more consumers were looking for reliable, right? Which was really the driver of brand in the first place, right? So if you had a brand that the consumer could identify with and they knew it was a reliable source, then that would encourage them to stick with that product, right? And... I think reliable isn't the driving force anymore, right? That it's more about innovation or that it's about a natural product, right? Like that's where they look for signals, uh, the shortcuts that method sent were natural and and cleaner and and design led and things like that. So consumers went there. So the next pendulum swing, I'm wondering what that is. Is it natural, right? Are there going to be more shortcuts and signals for natural or is it something else? Uh, I know we got to wrap it up here soon. So I'll, I'll, Leave it at that, unless there's anything else anyone wants to
3: add. And well, I think Marco's point is spot on too. You know, you're going to have so much information. You're going to have so much choice. Brand, you know, maybe that's where the pendulum starts to swing back the other way. Um, because, I mean, you it went from the mass brand. Now the market's fragmenting. The pendulum's going back, and eh, that might be the, the driving force. I think that's a, a very important point to keep thinking about.
1: I think this was great. I a great discussion. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Good questions. Great historic case study. Love that. Good choice. Love that it came from the finance guy in the room. That's funny as well. (laughs) And Marco, this is wonderful. Too bad we didn't get to fight, but I don't think it's possible for us to fight. Even if we hadn't met before this,
0: that was great. No, no. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for inviting me to this discussion. You guys have uh, great perspectives. Uh, I can tell that you guys have a ton of experience. It was really fun. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Nick. And uh, Evan and Kevin.
2: Uh, we're, we're honored to have you guys. Uh, this, this was great. Uh, appreciate Thanks to all
0: five of our <laughs> listeners for the fifth yeah. episode.
3: One. We're up to five
2: no, now, yeah. Kevin? One per episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you, guys. Right, everybody. Thank you. Right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Yeah.
1: Thanks for listening. To hear all past episodes and read the episode summaries, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as full show notes, head on over to forwardlookingbusiness.com. There, you'll also be able to schedule a call with our capital director to see how we can help your company meet its capital allocation needs.